And how are you doing? It's Monday's programme. It is the 15th of November 2021. It's me, the BBG, with you till 7 o'clock as usual. Please say hello to me through the website richieallen.co.uk. It says comment live on the menu bar. Drop me a message. It might be to comment on something you hear during the course of the show. Do that. I'll read the comments out as I go along. 5 o'clock in Salford then. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show. Live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, it is myself. I've had a good weekend, a chaotic weekend, a chaotic one, but a good one. Thanks for asking. Thank you for caring. I think I've got a terrific guest for you this evening. If you listen to the phone-in programmes, you'll remember that uh, not so long ago, a couple of months ago, or maybe a little bit longer than that, uh, Dr. Robert Hansen, a barrister, rang into the phone-in show and was incredibly interesting, full of information about the law, obviously, and COVID restrictions and mandatory vaccines. He qualified as a barrister in London in 1996. He's been in Hong Kong for 20 years because he set up his own law firm there called Silk Road Chambers Limited. He's very concerned about the way the law has been undermined in recent years, particularly in the last 18 months. Dr. Robert Hansen, barrister on the programme. He's the only guest. It's an extended conversation. It will be an extended conversation. Gentleman and a scholar, I believe him to be. We had a chat just before I came on air. So that's one not to be missed. He's got some opinions, qualified opinions. He also, he was very good. He sent me some clips. He said, Richie, here's some clips we might use to illustrate some of the points that uh, he will be making. I wish all of my guests were like that, that they came bearing gifts in the form of clips and said, there you are, Paulie. There's a bit of audio there to support something that I might be talking about later. Right, what, what am I doing now? The news. Here's the news. Yeah, the news. Here it is for you. Yeah, spent the weekend chasing a new puppy around the house. All, all exciting. Chaos, madness, but, but good fun. Smiled a lot this weekend. I'm not saying I don't smile, but maybe I don't smile as much as I used to smile. Maybe that's true. Let's talk about Kay Burley and the Conservative Party chairman, Oliver Dowden. Go on, Kay. Dowden was doing the media rounds this morning to talk about booster jabs and also the prospect of a difficult winter ahead and why and how we should all do, well, what they tell us to do. Here's Burley. You'll hear Burley first. Then you will hear the Tory party chairman. It's kind of interesting, this. Uh, moving on to COVID, 448,000 boosters given uh, yesterday. It's really ratcheting up now. Um, when will the jab be rolled out for, um, as one of my colleagues said, the younger age group, in other words, the over 50s? I think the, the, we're, we're progressing through the um, through the and as you said, we actually made, made very good progress. I think we're now at a 12 million, 2 million jabs in the 
the past week. Uh, there will be a further announcement uh, from JCVI, that's the independent uh, committee, later today on the rollout of uh, booster jabs. Clear, it's up to them, but I would hope that we would see a further expansion of, of booster rollouts, uh, but we'll wait for their announcement. So that's today. the JCVI, they're the people that advise the government and they're going to make a further announcement this morning? Yes, yeah, so, so we're expecting a further announcement from them uh, outlining what, what the next steps are. Clearly they're independent of government, but... Uh, yeah, we, uh, we would hope that, the government, that they will be advising us for, with further progress yeah, on that. Yeah, OK. This, I mean, there is less than six... I was, we were looking this morning, less than six weeks to Christmas. Can you believe it? Um, what are your predictions for any restrictions leading up to Christmas? Now, before we hear his answer, the JCVI, well, the government, well, Jonathan Van Tam, uh, England's Deputy Chief Medical Officer, and June Rain from the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Agency, they did address a press conference later in the morning, mid-morning, and they said yes, all over 40s in the UK will be offered a third dose of a COVID jab and 16 to 17 year olds will now be offered a second dose of a jab. So that did come to pass. It came to pass. All righty. Okay. What was that last question there that RK had for Dowden? What was the last question there? Something to do with Christmas, wasn't it? Christmas. Yeah, OK. This, I mean, there is less than six... I was, we were looking this morning, less than six weeks to Christmas. Can you believe it? Um, what are your predictions for any restrictions leading up to Christmas? Yeah, thousands of men who hate their mother-in-laws inching forward on their sofas this morning. Please say no household mixing. Please say no household mixing. Please say no household mixing. But sadly, he didn't say that. Well, really, Kay, it's in our hands, so all of us, all of your viewers, um, if you get the booster when the call comes, that is the biggest wall of defence that we have against COVID. And if you look at some of the numbers, uh, at the end of October, infection numbers were roughly comparable to where they were mid-January last year. If you remember, that was really at the height of it last year. But hospitalisations were 74% lower. Now, that shows you the power of the vaccine. So I'm confident that... If we stick the course, if people take the, the boosters uh, when they're asked to do so, that vaccine wall will hold up and we'll be able to have a, a decent Christmas this year. You hear that? Year. You hear that? Stick the course. Stick the course. Have your boosters when you're called and the vaccine wall will get higher and higher brick by brick and we'll be able to have a nice Christmas this year. Burley is not remotely perturbed at the fact that a government official is offering freedom at Christmas in exchange for having a medicine that you don't need and that might kill you. I mean, we're looking at hmm, she says. countries like Austria just across the channel and they are saying, if you've not had your vaccine and your booster, you have to stay at home. We're locking you in. Other people who are fully vaccinated can go about their business. Is that something that we might look at? Is that something that we might look at? Says Kay, Austrians who haven't been fully jabbed will only be permitted to leave home for limited reasons, like working or buying food. Around 2 million people in Austria are not fully jabbed. The country's Chancellor, Alexander Schallenberg, said, and I quote, We are not taking this step lightly, but unfortunately it is necessary. In reality, we have told one-third of the population you will not leave your home apart for certain reasons. That is a massive reduction in contacts between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. When he said that to the press, there were loud groans. But the Chancellor, Schallenberg, was taking no shit from the press. Oh, come on, stop whining. You lack discipline. But I've got news for you. You are mine now. You belong to me. 
Yes, all Austrians sound the same. They all do. Anyway, back to Oliver Dowden, the chairman chairman of the Conservative Party. What do you think, Oliver? Will it come in here? Will it come in here where we lock up the unjabbed? Uh, That's not something we're we're currently contemplating. Of course, it is the case, although it's it's an entirely separate... You big old Pinocchio nose. ...to very high-risk areas such as care homes... We are requiring people to have those... those. Hang on a second. That jumped a bit, didn't it? What did he say about Austria again? Uh, that's not something we're, we're currently contemplating. Of course, it is the case, although it's, it's an entirely separate matter that in relation to very high-risk areas such as care homes, we are requiring people to have those those double jabs. It's always been the British tradition, I think, to, to move on a consensual, voluntary basis. So we, we have no plans to to have that kind of differentiated approach between the vaccine and the non-vaccine. But it is so essential because it's, if you take the further vaccine, it's good for you, so it protects your own health. No, it doesn't. But it also protects everyone else's health. Because no, it doesn't. Because there's a lower risk of catching the disease and therefore transmitting it. Yeah, well, Bullshit. It's not consensual if you work for the NHS, is it? Because you're changing the rules there. Uh, well, well, She's so meek in saying that. It's not consensual if you work for the NHS, is it? You have to be very aggressive in that situation. You, you don't have to be Piers Morgan. You don't have to be an asshole. You don't have to try and draw attention to yourself, make yourself out to be the story or put yourself in the story. You don't need to do that, but you just jump all over him. Shut up. Stop, 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 stop. Stop telling me that it's very un-British. You're doing it, man. You're kicking, well, effectively, coercing people into having a job they don't want. And the ones who won't do it, well, you're effectively rendering them Unemployed, give over is what she should have said. The street fighter from Wigan. Well, yes, but that that is in a specific um, situation where you're an employee and you're dealing with very, very high risk people. Mm. I wonder if I I could just go back to uh, Christmas just for a second. Let's go back to Christmas. If you could go back to Christmas, dear listener, which Christmas would you go back to? I would go back to Christmas 1982 because I had an MB big track. A big track was a little tank with um, six wheels, three on each side, and the wheels had like a caterpillar thing going on there. And you programmed the big track. It was an amazing thing to to move forward, I don't know, five metres or two metres, and then turn right and then turn left. Marvellous thing, the big track. So I'm going to go for 1983 because I got a big track and I got a Manchester United replica strip. Sadly, not an official one. One that was ripped off by the Irish sporting clothing company, O'Neill's. O'Neill's used to just make jerseys. Liverpool, United, Celtic, and just rip them off. Anyway... Where was I? Because I know that we, you know, we, we were in a similar position this time last year when we were saying Christmas, you can have Christmas with your family, etc. And then two days before the rules were mm. changed. Why should we believe you now, Oliver Dowden? You say that we'll have a good Christmas and we won't have restrictions. But last year you said the same thing. And two days before Christmas, you dropped the bombshell. No mother-in-laws, no mixed, no mixing between houses. You just said that um, it's in our hands. Mm. So we, do, we really do need to make sure that we have these boosters when we're called... <laughs> It's such a wonderful dance between the so-called journalist, the pretend journalist, and the government minister. It's hilarious. So we really do need to have those boosters, don't we? Just to make sure that we, 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 we don't get locked down again this Christmas. Isn't that right, Mr Dowden? Or potentially we could find ourselves in a challenging position again. Yes, yes. Well, the way we avoid a challenging position is to, to take the booster. I can assure you there are no plans... The way to avoid a challenging position is to take the boosters, says Oliver Dowden. Then he went on to say, there's no plans for any restrictions this Christmas, you lying bastard. The Irish government is meeting this evening. 
to discuss the possibility of reintroducing restrictions in Ireland because apparently they're wait for it. <laughs> apparently they're wait wait for it, I said. Apparently there are one hundred people in intensive care in Ireland. One hundred people in intensive care with COVID. What kind of fuckery is this? So you're telling me there's a hundred people in hospital, right? And they have COVID, do they? Four point four no, it isn't. It's 5 million people now, is it, in Ireland? You have 100 people in intensive care right across the country and you say they have COVID. You want to reintroduce restrictions. Well, the Irish government seemingly does and later it is expected that the the, the, the Taoiseach, that is Micheál Martin, the Prime Minister, he's expected to announce that people will once again be encouraged to work from home if they can and all of that jazz. Twelve and a half minutes past the hour. Let's have a chat about LBC Radio's Sheila Fogarty. Sheila Fogarty. She had one time worked for BBC Radio 5 Live. She used to co-present breakfast with Nicky Campbell. All changed there now, of course. Right. Now, George rang in to Sheila Fogarty this afternoon. George is a care worker and he isn't happy at the quality of the COVID jabs. You see, the way George sees it, why should I be, pre- why should I be pressured into having a jab that only lasts for six months? It's not much use, is it, says George? Is it, Sheila? Listen to the presenter, Sheila Fogarty. This is, well, this is wow. George, this is healthcare. It's not like somebody's saying, I'm sorry, we're going to force you to spend a week in prison so that you can continue your job as a carer. It's saying, guess what? Your vaccine wanes, but we've got the solution, a booster. I had a booster when I was a kid for God knows what it was. I can't remember now. But wait, boosters are not new. This isn't punishment, it's healthcare. Yeah, but the thing is, I have to really look at the quality of the vaccine. It's rolled out, only lasts for six months. But we get the flu jab every year. Nobody says, oh, the flu jab, it's rubbish. Uh, People just get it. Uh, We do, do, though. We do say it's rubbish because it is rubbish. They, They make a guess every year. They take a punt on which strain of flu will be more prevalent. They take a punt on it and then they make a jam for it. And Sheila Fogarty, I'm pretty sure you know this, it works about 7% of the time, you cloth-eared bint. 7%. How could you go on the radio, go on the air and say something you know to be untrue? The flu jabs are worthless. They don't protect squat. They don't protect anybody. Lying backstart is Sheila Fogarty George. We've had three injections for the same year. It's a new disease. It's a new disease. It's a new disease. It's a new disease, George. And if you see the clip on LBC's Twitter feed, she's grinning like a Cheshire cat as she's interrupting and mocking poor George. It's a new disease, George. It's a new disease. It's a new disease. We're in an emergency still. Have you not noticed? No, we've never been in an emergency. Yeah, but every six months, I feel it's pushing people, people don't have trust in the vaccine and then they're pushing it more and more and it comes away of every six months you have to get a new one. But they're not saying that yet. But they are saying that, you you fake journalists. They are saying that. In fact, a guy called Ravi Gupta from Cambridge University went on Kay Burley's Sky News programme this morning and said that your annual COVID jab will be three shots. Imagine it. Your annual COVID jab will be three shots. Now, uh, three times six is 18 months. So there probably be, probably at some stage, someone is going to recommend that people get COVID jabs every four to five months. The lies, 
so readily roll off the tongue for these presenters. This is not just a presenter who doesn't have the facts. This is a gatekeeper. And it is a conscious gatekeeper, somebody who knows exactly what she is doing here. They're not saying that, that, that yet. They're constantly, but they are, love. constantly looking. No, they're not constantly looking. They're making it clear you'll be getting COVID jabs till the end of time, love. Constantly looking at what... The efficacy we've... lasts for six months. That's Good man, George. Why should I take a piece of shit that lasts for six months that is in phase three trials? There's no long-term data. Give over, love. You must be off your trolley. Give over. And and then threaten my job for it. George, God love me. He's doing well, George. But one of these days, I'm going to get on one of these programmes. That's what they said. That's what the professionals have said. On, on, current, on current vaccines, they're constantly looking at, at the immunity and constantly looking at the development of it. We're, we're in very new territory, George. We're in very new territory, George. They're constantly looking... Of course they're constantly looking at it. And they're constantly saying that, well, we know immunity wanes after six months, so we've got to keep topping it up. What part of that do you not understand? Anywho. But it's safe. Yeah. But until you... What was that? Hang on a second. But it's safe. Yeah. But it's safe, she said. But until you get something that lasts longer... Why? Good man, George. Good man. It's a pretty legitimate reason for wanting to hold back a bit. Wait till they come out with one that lasts a bit longer, maybe. They gave us these TB injections when we were children and they told us that we had life immunity from it. So why can't they give us a COVID jab that at least lasts for a couple of years, you know? Or two. Why? Because the flu jab only lasts for a few months. Doesn't work, though. During the flu season. Doesn't work. And then you need it again the next flu season. That's right, and it doesn't work then either, 7% of the time. And the one the next flu season. That's right, and Muppets keep going back to their doctors every year. Absolute goons, morons, cretins. People with less intelligence than Forrest Gump, they keep going back year on year to be injected with toxic shit and pus to protect them against the flu. And guess what? Here's the kicker. They end up getting the flu anyway, Sheila. They develop, and each year it's a different jab. That's right, and it doesn't work. Because they make yes. they make a guesstimate based on yes. proper data. Which, they make a guesstimate based on proper data. Which which kind of flu variant they're going to be facing. That's right, and they're wrong 93% of the time. Do you shill much, Sheila? Shilling Sheila Fogarty? It almost sounds like Fogarty has been taken off air, and somebody who looks very much like her, some vice president of Pfizer, has been put on LBC this afternoon. Because, I tell you what, if you got a vice president of Pfizer and put them in the place of Sheila Fogarty this afternoon, they wouldn't do as good a job as Fogarty is doing there of selling this crap. You know, this is a this is a deadly disease, George. No, it isn't. George, and people like you are working with the most vulnerable people to it. It's a deadly disease. Imagine saying it's a deadly disease and keeping a straight face. But the vaccine needs to be better. Go on, George. Good man. It's not good enough. Good lad. It's better than COVID. Six, months, six, six months. It's better than COVID, isn't it? For who, though? Who's it better than COVID for? I- it could be for some people. Listen, George, six months is fine by me. For the next six months, I, I have 90% immunity from this, <laughs> from, from serious effects of this illness. I could still get COVID, but I, have, I, I am 90% um, unlikely to leave hospital. Now, that's, yeah, those, nice, are, those nice. are great odds. Put it in my arm. Put it in my arm, she said. 
told you before I'm proud to be a journalist. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of my profession. I'm proud of some of the people I've worked with. I take it very seriously. I'm a curmudgeonly Waterford arsehole. I'm not the nicest guy that ever lived. I have a thousand faults, but I'm a journalist. I could never do that. How could you do that? How could you go on the air and sell yourself, prostitute yourself for companies like Pfizer, AstraZeneca, who have been fined billions and billions of pounds over the years for falsifying data, for killing people with their dodgy medicine? Imagine it. Strange, strange times because, yeah, many of the things that George is saying, the carer who phoned in, Fogarty should be saying. But she should be saying those things with a bit more passion than George and she should be putting those points to government scientists. But the media is dead. Gone. Finished. But then that's something I say pretty regularly. Sheila Fogarty, the shill there for LBC Radio, pushing the jabs. Pushing the jabs. Jab me up, jab me up. It's a deadly disease, George. Of course, it's not a deadly disease. Where are the bodies? 21 minutes past the hour. This will make you laugh. Uh, I know you hate James O'Brien, but this will make you laugh. Because again, it's it's just a nice little, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a nice il- illustration of where we are. You know, I feel sometimes like I'm in some psychedelic trance or psychedelic dream where all weird things are happening. Things I can't believe to be real, but I know they're real because I can see them and hear them. Here's James O'Brien on the same station, delighted with the booster jabs coming down the age ranges. O'Brien is delighted that we'll be giving the kiddies these crap jabs, right? Delighted. You will hear him lamenting that he cannot scare his listeners into taking COVID and climate change seriously. This is what I mean about journalism being dead. Listen to a guy who calls himself a journalist now, lamenting the fact that he just can't scare his listeners enough. Wow. You know, COVID booster shots for the under 50s, that's important. We've got patients left dying in ambulances outside A&E. These are important things. Yeah, yeah. We're going to give COVID boosters to the under 50s. That's great. It's important because we've got ambulances full of people lined up outside accident and emergency. Yeah, right. It doesn't explain why I can't get you frightened about this threat, but I can get you frightened about threats to statues of people you've never heard of. So you think your job is to frighten people, James? You think it's your job to frighten people into taking COVID seriously? You think it's your job to frighten people into taking climate change seriously? frighten them. It's not your job in any way to to challenge what the government is saying or the government scientists. It's not your job to platform the Barrington Declaration scientists to give them an airing and to challenge the government. No, it's your job to scare your listeners into believing this bollocks. That's your job. I mean, that is incredible, right? It is, really. Right? Let's use that as the example. Let's forget about the kneeling footballers or the um, crime of publishing history of National Trust properties in National Trust properties. Ah, shut up, you dickhead. Get on with it. Let's have a look around at the media landscape. All the people that claim it's biased against them, everywhere you turn, they're, they're being pandered to and, and, uh, and, and, and looked after. I can make you frightened about a statue of someone you've never heard of being taken down in a town you've never visited. Right. I, I can do that. I could if I joined the dark side. I'd, I'd, I'd do it. My, I'd be absolutely on top. I'd be on top. So O'Brien says, if I turned into a right-wing radio presenter, I'd be the best one because I'm the best broadcaster. That's what O'Brien. O'Brien is like Iceman 
in, in Top Gun. He's that arrogant and he's that shit, really, when it comes down to it, you know. Have you figured it out yet? Uh, no, figured what out? Uh, who's the best broadcaster? Well, it ain't you, dick, dickhead. It ain't you. That's a fact. It ain't you. Wait till you hear what he says now. But I don't because I respect you and I like people and I hate racism. He hates racism. He's outdoing David Brent here. And I think slavery was a bad thing, you know, controversial like that. No way, was it? So I could make you frightened of a statue of a slaver you've never heard of being pulled down in a town you've never visited. Right. But I can't make you frightened about a threat to our planet that is <laughs> dangerous on a species level. A threat to our entire species of real living people. I can't make you frightened of a threat to our planet that's a threat on a species level. Wow, that's how it is now. If you get a job with a, a commercial station or, or a local station, what, what, what do I do here? Do I chase down these politicians and these scientists and try and poke holes in their narrative and turn it upside down and shake it to see what falls out? No, no, you don't, Baldy. No, no, you frighten the listeners into believing what their government is telling them. I give over. You don't. You don't mean that, do you? We do. You got to frighten the shit out of your audience so that they'll do what the government tells them. That's your job now. Ten o'clock to one o'clock on LBC Radio. Hey, by the way, this is the most listened to independent news radio show in the world. Have I said that before? I'm channeling James O'Brien now. Uh, my name is Richie Allen. I'm the BBG. This is your Richie Allen radio show, live from Salford in Greater Manchester. Coming up in a moment, we're off to Hong Kong, where it's very, very late in the night, but a terrific barrister has agreed to stay up for us, and I can't wait for you to meet him again. He's Dr. Robert Hansen, and we've lots to talk about. Comment on richieallen.co.uk, top of the page, comment live. This is ACDC, but I think you've gotten that. ACDC and Thunderstruck on The Richie Allen Show, 29 minutes past five. Monday's programme, Drive Time. It's Drive Time somewhere. Nicholas says, Richie, glad you're playing ACDC and not Kiss. Have you seen what Gene Simmons has said about anti-vaxxers? Nicola, I haven't, and I don't want to. <laughs> Maybe it's best if I don't see it. Annabelle says the world has gone to bat soup crazy. It's gone so bat soup crazy that if a brontosaurus in a pink tutu paraglided into my garden, I wouldn't bat an eyelid. There's an image. <laughs> yes. John, that's our John, Scottish John in Austin, says, listening to a brainless, I'm glad I don't have a vice handy because I'd stick me effing head in it, says John. Me too. Rob says, I'm starting to think they're going to pull off a terrorist attack. They'll say it's a right-wing anti-vaxxer and use it to turn the jab on us. We are standing strong and people are refusing the boosters. You can hear their desperation now, says Rob. Thanks, Rob. Craig says, Highway to Hell would be more appropriate than Thunderstruck. He's got a point, does Craig. But <laughs> it's a bit gloomy. But yes, you've got a point there. Martin is in Spain. He says, Richie, lots and lots of people in Spain, where I live, have the sore throats and the swollen glands. All of a sudden, says Martin. Well, it is winter flu season, Martin. But then again, I don't know. Marcus says he'd love me to get on the James O'Brien show. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't stoop. I wouldn't deign to do that. He says he'll give me a bottle of Bacardi for Christmas. I've only just read that. Mart uh, rude by Marcus. Maybe you have a deal. 
Hi to Alan in Liverpool, who still hasn't had the jab, told the Department for Work and Pensions today that what's going to happen if the fascist regime dictates no jab, no job for every sector? Obviously, he got no answer. Just, erm, um, erm, um, um. I'm not having it, says Alan. Uh, O'Brien is a prince of dickheads, he says. Okay. Angela Lambert, how you doing, Angela? Says O'Brien is a pus-filled bladder of pathetic nastiness. Sick as pig shite too. Angela, woman after my own heart there. Very eloquently put indeed. Shall we get our guest on the programme uh, today? I'm excited about him coming on. I was excited about it for months. We spoke on a phone-in programme, I reckon probably back in May or June, maybe more recent than that. We said we'd we'd book some time together. It hasn't happened till now, but I'm glad it has. He has a PhD in acoustic comfort, would you believe, and told me all about that earlier on. Fascinating job to do with the acoustics of buildings. But he's a barrister. He qualified in the mid-90s and has spent 20 years in Hong Kong. He set up his own firm there called Silk Road Chambers Limited. I've had a look online at uh, Silk Road Chambers Limited. It is regarded and has dealt with very high-profile clients indeed over the years. Robert is concerned about the way the law has been undermined in recent years, particularly, of course, with COVID and mandatory injections. And uh, he's going to talk to us about that and more. Let's welcome to the programme, live from Hong Kong, Dr. Robert Hansen. Robert, what a sport you are for waiting up. How are you? Hi, Richard. Very well, thank you. I'm delighted you're on. And uh, huge interest in this. If you go to the comments, and you might do later on, you might do tomorrow, on on, on the website, a lot of interest. I've had a lot of private emails with questions for you. I've um, just downloaded, well, I've uploaded some audio that you can call in any time that you feel appropriate. Some of the um, uh, clips that you sent me, which are very prescient, uh, some of them five, six months old, but still is relevant now. First of all, I suppose question number one is, you know what's going on here. How is it in Hong Kong in terms of what is the uh, approach to dealing with COVID where you are now? The approach to dealing with COVID is vaccination, vaccination, testing, testing, and more vaccination. And today, the government expert advisors have just agreed to recommend lowering the age limit for Sinovac vaccine to children as young as three years old. So now children as young as three will be vaccinated with um, a COVID vaccination. Would you, so that's- would you have any kind of idea you know, kind of taking the temperature of how, how do we say how do we refer to people as Hong Hong? How do we Hong, refer, Kong, Hong Kongers? Is that Hong Kongers? Is that right? You're kidding me. That's it. Yeah, fantastic. Hong Kong. Searching my brain there. If you were to test the temperature, what do you think Hong Kongers will think about jabbing three-year-olds? Do you think there might be any resistance to that? I think. Um, gosh. At the moment, there's very little energy to resist anything because, um, as you're aware, there were certain protests in 2019 and as a result of, um, well, actually as a result of COVID, the protests ended. And then shortly after that, we got a national security piece of legislation. And since then, people have been reluctant really to criticise anything the government does. So people are fairly quiet, but I think the feeling is people are not comfortable. 
and with that or indeed with vaccination at all. When the vaccination was voluntary, the take up rate was very, very low. It was less than 20%. And it's only when the government started to mandate it for certain professions uh, or make life difficult if it did not have a vaccine that the vaccination uptake increased quite dramatically. And it stands now at about 68, 69% for one injection. That's where we are at the moment. 68, 69. Um, so maybe a little bit less than for the double jab, somewhere in, somewhere in the 50s, is it? So it's very, very much like the United States, it sounds. Yeah. and um, But I think that most people in Hong Kong are vaccine hesitant. They they'll just don't really want it and they feel compelled to take it. Um, these injections are not very effective. I mean, for example, today it's just reported that we have six new imported COVID-19 infections. Um, all six of them, aged 17 to 68, have received both doses of the BioNTech vaccine. And yesterday, um, we had one imported COVID-19 case, and it was a man from the UK. Um, he'd been triple jabbed. Um, the patient, a 56-year-old man who arrived from the United Kingdom on Monday, received a booster biotech jab last month after being double jabbed with the AstraZeneca in February and in April. And it's every single day the people testing positive are the ones that have been vaccinated, particularly for some reason with the BioNTech vaccine. And for the month of October, I did a account, pulled the daily countdown, and 99 out of 110 people testing positive have been double vaccinated. So it doesn't seem to me that the vaccine is actually working. You know, I come from Waterford. Well, you might know. I, I know you do hear the programme from time to time. And my my county is the most vaccinated in, in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland. It's got a 99% plus uptake. And I think it's 99% double jabbed. And yet it has the most COVID cases in the country. Why is this not getting through to people that something is very wrong? with these numbers, that these jabs are are obviously not doing what it is they're supposed to do, and therefore maybe it's not the best thing in the world to take them. It's 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 all down to um, media control. And this is this is what, you know, Hitler was on about with Goebbels um, uh, before the Second World War. If you can control the media, you control the message, you win. And actually, on that point, I've, I've got a few books I surround myself with them. And I'll give you a very quick quote, actually, from What is History by E.H. Carr. It's a classic book that I think most lawyers will read or historians and maybe even journalists. Um, just a couple of sentences. And it reads, every journalist knows today that the most effective way to influence opinion is by the selection and arrangement of the appropriate facts. Yeah. It used to be said that facts speak for themselves. This is, of course, untrue. The facts speak only when the historian calls on them. It is he who decides to which facts to give the floor and in what order or context. And essentially, the media is telling the vaccine's working, it's safe, it's wonderful. Laws are being um, rolled out across the globe requiring people to have a vaccine. So it's it's very difficult for people I, to resist and probably don't put up too much resistance because 
all they hear is the same message repeated and also from several different sources. I think it was Bertram Russell, the um, philosopher that said, if you can hear a message from different sources, two different sources, you believe it's true. And so once you hear it from, say, BBC Sky, and then you get your alumni, university alumni yeah. update and recommending the vaccine, you think, well, must be true because different people are telling me this. So that's really how it works. And that's why I think people are not questioning too much as they should be. That Russell quote is brilliant. It's very apt because I've banged on for many years in different in different jobs, in different broadcasting jobs, about the problems with the death of media plurality. Uh, I, I certainly won't have to give you any lectures on that. You'll know all about it. But, I, but, but going way back to the, to the late 90s, I could see what was coming. I could see, you know, multinational companies buying up great swathes of, I shouldn't say swathes, but buying up blocks of radio stations, ending local uh, commercial radio and everything becoming homogenised. And I could see this. And that speaks to Russell because it's much easier to do that. I mean, what have you got now? If you're in the UK... I think 25 years ago, every single commercial station would have had its own mid-morning talk show presented by a local person. Now, the only talk shows that deal with news and current affairs on radio in England, there's only two of them, Talk Radio and LBC, Global and Bauer. It's shocking. So, of course, you're, it, brilliant for you to say what Rust, to, to, to quote Russell, because those are your only two sources, and they're largely saying the same thing. I know Talk Radio gives the impression that it's anti-vaccine mandates and all that, but really it isn't. It's still saying that the vaccine is good. We've all had the vaccine, blah, blah, blah. It's a good point, Robert. Yeah, I'm, well, we'll do, can we do a couple more philosophical quotes and then we can move on to the... Oh, do, stuff. I love a bit of philosophy. Yeah, um, this one is actually from um, Aldous Huxley. Um, it's Brave New World Revisited, which I think is, is the better of the two books. Um, and he points out that the nature of psychological compulsion is such that those who act under constraint remained under the impression that they are acting on their own initiative. The victim of mind manipulation does not know that he is a victim. The best of constitutions and preventative laws, um, we can talk about law assumption um, later on, um, will be powerless against over-organisation imposed by technology and by means of ever more effective methods of mind manipulation. The, democracy, the democracies will change their nature. The quaint old forms, elections, parliaments, Supreme Courts, and all the rest, yes, they will remain. The underlying substance will be a new kind of nonviolent um, totalitarianism. All the traditional names, all the hallowed slogans will remain exactly what they were in the good old days. Democracy and freedom will be the theme of every broadcast and editorial but democracy and freedom in a strictly Pickwickian sense. Meanwhile, the ruling oligarchy and its highly trained elite of soldiers, policemen, thought manufacturers and mind manipulators will quietly run the show as they see fit. And that's what's happening. How did he know? How did he know, do you think? I've asked this of many learned men and women who've read Huxley, who read Orwell and others, uh, uh, Philip K. Dick and others, how did they see that this was coming? How did they know? 
I don't know. And but I'll, I'll give you an up to date one as well. I've got, I've got three books here, just reasonably short quotes. And this one's from Novak Dokovic, right? So modern person. He, he said this in 2014. I have got his book. I managed to get a signed copy when I met him briefly in Australia a couple of years ago. And, and he writes, he said, um, growing up under communism, you are taught to be you are taught not to be open minded. And there's a good reason for this. If you are not open minded, then you can be easily manipulated. People at the very top are very invested in making sure we do not question what we are being told to believe, whether it is the communist ruler or for many of us, the rulers of the food and pharmaceutical industries. People at the top understand that most of us are led by fear. You don't have to be under a dictatorship to be manipulated by fear. It's happening today in every country in the world. He wrote that in 2014. I'm staggered. How, uh, amazing. I mean, he, amazing. he does reference the pharmaceutical industry, controlled by fear, and not under a communist dictatorship, but in countries all across the globe. Pretty brilliant. I, I, you know, it's, it's amazing how well tuned in he is. And I, and I guess when when he did the 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 rounds of the media when he was pushing the book, I doubt too many of the presenters picked up on that particular passage from his book. He's a bit of um, he's becoming a bit of a hero for many of us because he 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 has asserted his right to tell people to mind their own business when they ask him if he's been jabbed. It's believed that he probably hasn't been jabbed because of his well-known stance, you know, against jabs and stuff. So. You mentioned Australia, Robert. You met him two years ago. The Australian Open is on the horizon. It's only weeks away, really, seven, eight weeks away. And um, I don't I don't think the Australian tennis authorities or the government have yet decided what to do with unjabbed tennis players, whether to force them into quarantine uh, or, or deny them their right to play in the tournament itself. That's going to be fascinating. I know you're a tennis fan and you play a bit, so um, we'll be watching that one closely, won't we? Yeah, um, I think the people around Dokovic as well, I think the probably the top three, four players are not vaccinated. I, I would guess they seem quite close. Um, Dokovic, Medvedev and Zverev, they seem quite close friends. And I think they live in Monte Carlo as well. But um, I think if the top three don't go to Australia, it gets a bit embarrassing for Australia. Doesn't it? And especially people start to Do ask. Dokovic, sorry, especially as Dokovic is defending champion. So, That's um, right. He's won it eight times, has he, or nine times? It's unbelievable. He, he's won it a lot of times. Yes, that's right. And and it it won't just be embarrassing for the tennis authorities, but for the establishment itself that wants to force these jabs on people. This isn't a you know a middle of the road professional. This is a top athlete, one of the greatest athletes in the history of sport, let alone his own sport. So that is going to be fascinating. Let me remind our listeners, we have on the line from Hong Kong, Robert Hansen, PhD, who is a barrister from London originally in the 90s, moved to Hong Kong 20 years ago, set up Silk Road Chambers Limited there. We're talking about the law and COVID and lockdowns, and we've lots to get through. We're going to be on air for another hour, another hour and five minutes. I'm really grateful, and so should you be, for Robert staying up, because it's way, way into the early uh, it, it's 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 the midnight hour there. It's beyond the midnight hour. It's the witching hour there in uh, in Hong Kong. But I'm glad that you uh, that you stayed up. We have um, some interesting bits and pieces that you wanted to play. You can call them in at any time. 
I hadn't seen the Clapton interview. I'd read some of his comments, but I hadn't seen it. But some of the things he talked about with respect to his doctor not really being on the ball when it came to letting him know about side effects or reporting, that's very interesting, that. It's more than interesting. It's more than interesting. And there's there's legal um, precedent, actually, which would suggest that he's actually got a claim against his doctor. Um, do we want to go, can we just do one more philosophical quote and then go on to the legal stuff? So get, we'll finish the philosophy. Um, You've got it, the theory, ex- Robert. It ex- explains how we got there. So we've had Huxley, who's a, a, a real philosopher, we've had current number one tennis player, pretty much saying the same thing. And we've got a stand-up comedian now from 2005 called George Carlin. I think you, you've obviously heard of him. Yeah. And, uh, and he, he says, you know, do you know what Nazis are? He says, and he says, when fascism comes to America, it will not be in brown and black shirts. It will not be with jackboots. It will be Nike sneakers and smiley shirts. Smiley, smiley. Fascism? Hmm. Germany lost the Second World War. Fascism won it. Believe me, my friend. And when fascism comes to America, it will be in corporations. It will be when corporations become the government. How true. Expand uh, on that. Th- that's, that's, that all sounds very simplistic. Now, I agree with this, so uh, there's no point in me pretending to be the devil's advocate. But expound, okay. expand on that. The corporations are the government or will be the government. How? Well, the corporations are the government now because um, they control um, most of the resources and governments want corporations in their economies. Therefore, they they're very friendly to corporations, and if we and really corporations can determine which governments or who's going to be elected prime minister or president of the United States, um, through funding. Yeah. So as corporations get more um, powerful and have more money, they can actually bankroll whichever leader they want. In, into power, uh, and I think that's what they've been doing, particularly with Biden, um, with Obama, with actually with all of them. I, I wouldn't, you know, I think just say all across the globe. I think they're all slaves to to large corporations, um, and also there is the, the Philip Davies quote. I keep coming back to that because he's saying, look, the 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 government, um, none of us really against the vaccine, um, but we're just against the vaccine being made compulsory. And then he says, I can't speak for British Airways, but clearly airlines and other bodies can set rules they oh, wish right. before deciding to allow customers on their flights. This is a private matter between a company and a customer. And I sort of um, wrote back to him very strong language saying this is actually a lot of balderdash um, because you regulate companies for race, sex, age, wages, time, and even the type of light bulb they can use on the factory floor. So, you know, it, <laughs> you do interfere with companies when you want and, and when companies will want that to happen but there's um, a contradiction here now I've got to call because I agree with okay. what you've said but there is a there is a this is complicated because I believe you're absolutely right to say what you've said so you have these corporations now you know saying that okay we'll we'll put into place the the, 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 the mask mandates and we'll insist that people have the jabs but I've heard people like Michael O'Leary Ryanair is not an insignificant corporation I've heard the boss of 
British Airways, Willie Walsh or, or somebody like him, they say government. So if corporations have so much control over governments because, as you rightly pointed out, they provide the funding, they choose both sides of the argument, they choose the right wing candidate and the left wing candidate. I agree with you, you're absolutely bang on the money. Well, how can we say that on the one hand, but then say that, well, corporations are, you know, just doing what they're doing because of the government scientists and the government's, the government politicians? You see, there is a kind of a contradiction in there. Like, who really is in charge? Or does it suit them at times to kind of pass the baton and say, well, you're, you're in charge. Let's, let's make it look like you're in charge. And uh, then, then we'll make it look like the private sector is in charge. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I've always... Oh, probably for many, many years now, just believed that you've got a handful of global dictators, people that really just control the whole game. Gates have been obvious person. He's been mentioned many times. Yeah. And um, and they just control the big corporations and they control the governments. And and that's that's really how it works. I think. So to take an example of that. I think um, I think the aim is for everybody to have a smartphone. Um, and 24 so that eventually um, you will have an updated social credit score um, determined by a handful of global dictators that can be uploaded onto your smartphone 24-7-365 because in Hong Kong from the 1st of November you're not allowed to enter a government building unless you have a QR code and in order to have a QR code you've got to have a smartphone And and then once you've got the smartphone I think it's the same in Australia once you've got the smartphone, you can then receive an updated social credit score. You, there's no reason why you can't have an updated social credit score. So um, that's why I think these corporations put in place actually the the tools by which they can actually have control. And I think they set the rules um, through funding and um, through funding really of everything. I mean, universities are heavily funded by corporations. Um, I did my PhD at University College London, and as part of that is the London School of Pharmacy. And they're essentially bankrolled by GlaxoSmithKline Beecham. So, you know, they have a big influence on on what appears in academic articles. Um, they do, and what ends up on the news as a, as yeah. a consequence of that, yeah. And, and the other advantage of, of doing it this way is that people think that students are, oh, it's a student, they're innocent if they're a PhD researcher, but they're not. They've actually been funded by GlaxoSmithKline Beecham uh, or the Wellcome Trust. There's the other big funders of it. And also that lecturers are, are neutral, you know, and sort of um, brown sweater and banana yeah, truth seekers, shoes yeah. you know yeah, yeah just uh, they've got nothing in the fight but actually they've got the hell of a lot in the fight because in order to get funding you have to really sing the message that the, the piper um sorry the person playing the piper paying the piper um is telling you to sing and that's the large corporation every single time it's a handful of people running this who control the corporations because governments come and go they, they, they come and go, they come and go. But Gates has always been there. Always, has hasn't always he? Been there. And if so, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is bankrolling your university or your research and you know that Bill Gates is absolutely convinced, or at least says he is, that uh, CO2, man-made CO2, is going to catastrophically 
warm up the planet. Well, if you're those PhDs and if you're those deans of colleges, well, it, it's going, you're going to be influenced in what you write and in what you say. There's no doubt about that. It's not rocket science. It's a fact. Absolutely. And for, for example, I think um, two weeks ago, there's one of these um, on, on online alumni meetings where the, um, the um, new provost of UCL um, gave a talk to address people. And he was interviewed by somebody called from Bloomberg, one of the Bloomberg finance people. And it was all about what you're doing about climate change, what you're doing about climate change. That was really the, the whole theme. They were just flogging climate change, climate change, climate change. So, you know, every and I get updates from different universities and all of them is climate change, climate change, climate change all the time. But that's actually very crafty marketing because if you've been to a reasonably decent university you might get a reasonably decent job within a, a large corporation and you're going to be receiving these updates all the time from a from a university and sometimes you may feel a bit of loyalty to the university uh, and you'll probably trust the university so this is another way to get inside people all across the world through these alumni network networks and the repeated message of CO2, COVID vaccine, CO2, COVID vaccine. That's all I ever seem to receive from, from universities these days. Is that right? And and so on the one hand, we have these these academic institutions being funded by the, the Gates Foundation and others. So it stands to reason that the men and women who say, well, I don't think there's any truth in this, well, they can be removed by basically by not getting very much money or any money at all. I'm I'm mindful of a woman who came on the program with me last year or the year before, Valentina Zharkova, who's an academic in this country, who believes I think that, she's from Northumberland, isn't she? Well done. What a brain you have! What a memory! Absolutely, I couldn't think of it for a moment. And she 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 looks at the uh, the maunder minimum. She she's convinced that we might get a cooling period in ten or so years, and she's also pretty eloquently explains why she doesn't believe the, the, the global warming models. But I suppose the way to get rid of people like that is just to, is just to starve them of funding. It is. I mean, in Australia, I mean, I, gosh, I, I got into this the global warming scam probably when they banned the incandescent light bulb in England um, because I, I like the old-fashioned light bulb. The new ones make me ill for, for various reasons. The light spectrum is quite different um, and I lose all my energy under LEDs and CFL lights, but I'm very energised under the old incandescent light bulb. So uh, the reason for banning that was because of the global warming. Then I started to investigate the global warming scam and through that I ended up meeting somebody called Liam Plymer and I got to know him quite well and um, also Chris Monkton, who's been on your show, and somebody called Bob Carter, who was a professor at John Cook University in, in Australia. He had different views to the university. And his contract was just not renewed. This is how they do it. They don't this is how the they contract. do it. And they would also play the man and not the ball. They would just make allegations that were spurious, and they got away with it. Like they would just say, ah, oh, he's funded by big oil and gas. And this wouldn't be true, but if you repeat it enough times, the old adage about, you know, a lie travels twice around the world before the truth has time to put his trousers on or something like that. Because I used to get that. I used to get that. I used to get emails from the Green Party years ago. I used to get emails from people saying to me, ah, oh, you're just a lying bastard and we know you're funded. They would say that. And of course, I'd be funded by nobody, apart from yeah. listeners who might send me the price of a cup of coffee every month. But I certainly wasn't on anybody's payroll. And as a you know former lefty, I, I, I bought into this garbage from for most of the 90s. I believed it. Oh, yeah, global warming. Yeah. 
yeah, the greenhouse effect and all of that. Un- until I went and, you know, had the uh, good sense to start looking for myself. But these are the things. We've got Robert Hansen on the line. Robert's a barrister. He's in Hong Kong. It sounds like he's next door. That's because of technology. So on the one hand, we are decrying these big tech joints. And on the other hand, we're enjoying, we're enjoying some of the technology that they've given to us. I can't fail to see the irony. But that's being a bit glib. Let's be honest about it. Uh, you know I'm on board with a lot of what Robert is saying. It might not make for the best interview you've ever heard in your life. But I think we're beyond me shouting him down now and asking him to prove this or that or the other thing because of where we are. We know it's totalitarianism. We can see it staring us in the face. It's happening. There's no point in me trying to say, ah, come on, Robert. I, I, I have, you know, too much respect for Robert. And you're not stupid either. So um, I'm mindful of the time. It's coming up for six o'clock here in the UK. We have some bits of audio to get through. We're going to stay, Robert's going to stay with me till seven o'clock. Um, unless he says I've had enough now. I'm knackered. I've got to go to bed. But if he doesn't, he'll stay with us. Do you want to talk a little bit about Eric Clapton before we hear him? Okay, then let's uh, yeah let, let's go for the Eric Clapton thing. Um, background is that um, obviously Eric Clapton, fantastic musician, um, and he took the COVID vaccination, um, and because he trusted it, I think because it was from Oxford and he trusted Oxford, so he took the COVID vaccination, and after the first um, sort of um, injection, he didn't feel too great. In fact, very bad um, impact on him. Um, but he felt because he'd started, he should have the second one. He had the second one and that made him even more ill. Um, and I think, is this what he's going to describe now? I think. Yeah, he's going Richard? to talk a little bit about, uh, he's going to talk a little bit about, let me just get, make sure I've got it right. He's going to talk a little about, a little bit about the yellow card reporting system ah, and his yes. doctor. So yes, you're right. You're setting it up beautifully. Uh, it's we're going to hear it from the point where he's just explained that he did get a very serious reaction after the second jab, and then he gets in touch with his doctor. So we can hear that now. I'll play it okay. now, and then Robert will be back then in a moment. Robert Hansen, live in Hong Kong. Do you feel like you were made aware of those risks beforehand? Oh God, no, God, no! I didn't even know there was a yellow card report. I didn't know there was any such thing. My doctor said, oh, you should... My, my GP here in London uh, said, because I had to get it done on an NHS with an NHS doctor that I've known too from in the country for a long time. He didn't say anything. They gave me a leaflet of, of, for the first jab, which I didn't really look at, but um, they didn't say anything about adverse reactions. They do say you might feel a bit sore or, you know, like you'd say for... A, but they did say also they safe. You know, it's effective and safe. And uh, I called my uh, doc, the NHS doctor after the second jab and I said, I've been told there's a yellow card system that, where I can complain about um, after effects. He said, yes, have you, they still go because I told them about uh, and he said, well, I'll, I'll fill in the, uh, the, the report and send it. I never saw a yellow card. I mean, that apparently that's stays with the doctor, but... I didn't, you know, that stuff was not made known. That stuff was not made known. Is the doctor in trouble or could he be or she? Yes, the doctor is in big trouble because um, despite the um, immunity given to obviously the vaccination companies and I think doctors as well, but they're not, they won't have immunity if they fail to obtain consent from 
the the person they're giving the injection to and by consent we mean informed consent now informed consent was clearly defined in a case called montgomery against lanarkshire health board in the supreme court 2015 um, by lord newberger who was um, then president of the supreme court and um, and he made it clear that the the doctor has to explain not just the good parts or the positive bits about about a, a particular treatment, but also had to sit down and talk to the patient about all the potential risks, side effects and problems. And the onus was on the doctor to explain the problems, not for the patient to, to ask if there's any problems. So the doctor has the duty of care to explain all the problems and make sure Mr. Clapton was fully informed before he agreed to take the injection. Clearly he was not informed, he did not give consent and therefore the doctor I think could face um, charges of battery um, quite easily, possibly section 20 because he um, punctured the skin, therefore that's called a wound. So but certainly battery which is unwanted touching 100% I think he would get home and dry on that and also probably section 20 and the damages that he would get would all be the, the damages flowing from the all the um, the concerts and performances that he lost as a result of not being able to do those performances because of the um, the injection and also for pain suffering and any loss of immunity he would get damages for that at least I, I'm pretty sure he would based on what I've heard um, on that extract and also the full interview. And you mentioned just before we heard the clip, it's your understanding that he is taking it forward or trying to anyway. Um, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure if he was trying to, to, to seek legal damages or not, but I think he should do. I think he's, he's certainly got a good case um, for doing that. Um, I can give you the, just the exact quotes from Montgomery. Do you want to know the facts of Montgomery or the brief facts of it? Is, or do you just want the, the reasoning behind it? I suppose I, I suppose the reasoning behind it, yeah, it's 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 um, I, I I can't believe it's only six years ago. That's the thing that, that where was I when this when this happened? I suppose it's difficult to 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 know everything that's happening in the world, but because it's very important this, and it's 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 again it's so recent this uh, this what would you call it this um, uh, God precedent precedent Judicial thank you precedent yeah it's so recent only six years yeah. Yeah, I mean, the case actually started in 1999. It took a long time to, oh, to geez, work its it way through the legal system. And that's one of the big problems with law. Um, it's very, very slow. And that's a major concern I have actually with any form of legal action against governments or corporations over um, lockdowns, human rights, um, all these rather um, um, large claims that have been made. They're going to take a long time to get to court. And by the time they do get there, it's quite possible that... Um, Everyone will have been vaccinated. You'll have your smartphone, your QR code, and if you're not being vaccinated, there'll be a knock on your door, pin you down, and vaccinate you before it even gets to court. So we'll come back late. to that, by the way. This this idea about somebody coming to your home and force vaccinating you. You referenced the Chinese turning up to people's homes to perform abortions on them, which which did happen. So because this so, so much of what's happening here does have the whiff of China about it, and Jonathan Sumption mentions this in one of the clips that you've um, sent to me. 
uh, Robert. So, so we'll, we'll definitely get into that. He also talks about coercion and his disappointment at seeing ethnic minority celebrities pushing the jabs on their, I suppose, on their own people. And uh, that's the next little bit of audio. It's about it's about 90 seconds long. Do you want to set that up? Yes. Um, again, I, th- I think from, from a legal perspective, again, um, coercion it can be um, mental or physical, uh, and it's forcing you to do something that you don't really want to do. And when you're using celebrities and, and people of influence to, to sell something, Ah, that's um, like this injection, which is still on trial, has all the problems with it. That's, I think I, I agree with um, what um, Eric Clapton is about to say about you, you trying to guilt trick people. And I think he even takes it as far as calling it sadism, doesn't he, I think, in, in this clip. He does. Let's hear it. Here's Clapton again in conversation with, um, remind us, who was he in conversation with? I can't remember. It was a podcast he did. Yeah, it was I, a podcast, yeah. I will find and I will credit the, the person involved. Uh, this is not like me. I normally do that. But listen to the clip. It's kind of powerful. The opposite of that is what we're experiencing. If, if you take that away, what we're experiencing that disturbs me most is coercion. And I had said to my friend, the doctor, my, my doctor, I said, do, do you think this vaccine thing's ever going to become mandatory? It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. They could never pull shot. I mean, they'd never pull that on. Well, I got a funny feeling, you know, and bit by bit, it's it's that. And to see celebrities, especially what really got me was ethnic minority celebrities guilt tripping their own community. That broke my fucking heart and made me so angry. I have a lot of friends in that part of the world and... Uh, to see them preyed on like that, it is it's just so there. We step that's where it steps into sadism for me. The the photographs of the people on buses with masks on saying, "Don't let their sacrifice be in vain." Phew, that's bad. That's bad. It's it's very dark. It's very dark. It's victimization. Is what it is. Eloquently put by Eric Clapton, the, the point about sadism is well made. You might come back to that in a moment. Celebrities crave publicity, though. We've seen this before. I remember some years ago, Noel Edmonds and others got stitched up by a comedian who got Noel to put out some stupid um, public interest message about cake. Do you remember that, Robert? This, uh, this, this imagined drug that didn't exist. I can't remember which comedian did it. But anyway, of course, desperate for for publicity, some celebrities took part in this video to warn people about the dangers of cake. The likes of Lenny Henry, he was featured in the clip with Eric Clapton there because it's a video of a a Clapton interview. Henry might say, if you put, look, we, we all like a little bit of publicity. And look, the government told me the jobs are safe. So don't be trying to foist some responsibility onto my shoulders. I, I just did, I did a public service thing. That's what he would say. I, I really don't buy that because, um, you know, if he was buying, maybe he was, if he was buying a car or um, some product of his own, I bet he'd do some research on it. I, I, I bet he'd look into the pros and cons of it. I bet if he was buying a television or a computer, he would ask questions about it. Why, why should he accept 
what a government tells you. I mean, have people learned nothing from Iraq? You know, the blatant lies about weapons of mass destruction that did not exist, that resulted in one and a half people, one and a half million people being murdered. Yeah. I mean, have we not recovered from this? And and people just saying, oh yeah, you know, Tony Blair, you know, that's the guy that, you know, lied about these weapons of mass destruction, probably murdered David Kelly as well, and yeah. because he was he was the you know the guy that could have actually stopped this from happening. So I have to get rid of him. Let's kill him straight away, um, and let's get lots to defend the government you know that he's a safe pair of hands and um you know haven't people learned from that i mean lenny henry must remember iraq and he, he must remember the windrush he must remember the windrush generation i'm not sure if lenny's family are windrush people but lenny's from his background lenny was born and bred in the uk so obviously he, lenny is british but his his grandparents or parents came from the caribbean so he will know just what a shower of bastards uh, the government is and has been to that generation of people. So that's even more grounds to be very sceptical about what you're told by by politicians. It is. And, and I think the, the way they do coercion as well, it's who's doing the coercing? Um, you know, is it the government? Is it the vaccine company? They make it very blurred with having these people quite removed from the actual product, if you like, um, doing the selling of the product. So it's, they make it very difficult to pin down or bring a charge against somebody doing coercion. I guess in this case, it would be the government. Um, but again, you'd have to link it to an actual person um, being coerced in, into the doctor's surgery and yeah. taking the injection. And, and it's very difficult to prove that. And you um, said years, because some listeners might listen to this now and say, Wow, this guy Robert Hansen is clued in. Obviously knows his stuff. And he's making a case here as to how people might be liable. Why they might be actionable, some of these people. But on the other hand, you're saying it could take years and years and years to do it. That That's the problem. Yeah. Um, but I still think you can, you can certainly start these actions. I think any doctor, any medic that has not explained the full list of problems with that vaccination because they are known i mean we, we all know that you know there's no long-term data we know the number of people that have been killed the number of people actually healthy people that have been killed the number of um injuries that have occurred we know the vaccine company has no liability we know they couldn't even get any insurance from for this stuff we know there's been absolutely no evidence no trials at all of mixing um that vaccination with different types of types of other medication and even worse still now with the booster there's certainly no data on how for example a pfizer vaccination will mix with an astrazeneca vaccination so you know the doctor has to explain that and he also should explain the full um risk of actually catching covid i think the, the classic quote you use quite a lot and it really is brilliant is the Chris Whitty one you know the, the chances of catching this are very remote and if you get it you won't even realize you've got it um, most of you won't even realize it and if you do get it you'll probably recover from it and the doctor has to explain all that the Montgomery ruling was very clear very clear so yeah very very clear it's crystal clear so those doctors that don't explain it I think are are liable for this. Some um, of them are they, getting they um, 15, 20, 25 quid per jab. It's been suggested it's a gravy train. I just realised um, I put an article on my website this morning and I'm not perfect but it's not like me. I underestimated 
the potential fatality rates for the jabs in the UK because the yellow card reporting system here has received 597 reports of death after the Pfizer-BioNTech jab, 1,118 reports for the AstraZeneca jab, that's people who died shortly after having it, and 19 for the Moderna, and 32 unspecified. I made a complete balls of my mathematics when I put this article on my website because if you take as a given that only around 1 in 10 people are likely to report a reaction to a Covid jab I got my mathematics all wrong, I said 5,000, when in fact it might be as many as 12,000 I say might be because I'm responsible, I'm not going to be sensational here as many as 12,000 people may have been killed by a Covid jab Mother of yeah. God, Robert. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, they stopped rollouts of medicines for far less than that. Correct. This reminds me of, um, just to deviate just a little bit, um, there's a group of people in Daventry, uh, and they met with um, their Conservative MP called Chris Heaton-Harris. And um, they they put the question to him that, they asked him, are you aware that 1,700 people have died um, as a result of the vaccination? And he said, no, actually, I wasn't aware of that. And then uh, there were two very astute questions that followed, and this is on YouTube. Um, one of the questions was, well, if um, a car had killed 1,700 people, surely the car would be recalled. Would you have the car recalled? Excellent. And his response was, well, I still favour the vaccine as the way out of this. So I couldn't really answer that. And then his next response is, I think I represent a large chunk of my constituents. And then another rather astute lady says, well, that's because and only because you've not explained the problems of the vaccine to them. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And, well, and that's that's what the MPs do. They 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 desperately say, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. It's a bit like the you know the cigarette litigation um, for, from uh, Philip Morris from a long long time. Oh ago. yeah yeah yeah. But where yeah. they you know where they say does does vaccine link to cancer? We don't know. We don't know. You know and um, you know the the way Chris Eaton Harris expressed it with, the, with his hands was a little bit like we don't know. We don't know. I like, don't tell me, don't tell me. But the great thing is, if people do write to their MPs and do tell them about these facts, these numbers, these statistics, the MP is not going to be able to run what I call the Tony Blair defence, which is where you say, well, all the experts said that yeah. um, Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. You know, all these experts, I was just following the, the, the advice after I killed Dave, Dr. David Kelly, <laughs> because he, he, he was a bit of a problem. But once you got rid of him... Yeah, but does, the, you, you know that it's very unlikely that Blair had anything to do with David Kelly's death. You're way too clever for that now. Uh, Blair, I don't think Blair, Blair is evil incarnate on some levels. I would agree with you all day long. Detestable. I could, we could, we could adjective each other to death on Blair. Uh, no doubt about it. But um, I think far more powerful people now took out David Kelly than than Tony, the uh, the puppet Blair. But look, you might be right. What do I know? I, 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 and, and on the Blair thing, the other thing he did was see the first legal advice he received said that there was not a case for going and invading Iraq and, right. and said you can't do it. So he then turned to his Attorney General at the time, which was Peter Goldsmith QC. Um, Peter Goldsmith, I think, um, so I may have heard on the grapevine, that um, he told Tony Blair actually 
not a good idea legally, not a good idea at all. So Blair sent him to America to meet his counterpart in America. Then Goldsmith comes back and says, I tell you what, actually, if if um, Saddam um, had um, weapons of mass destruction and you could argue um, he could maybe attack you in a short space of time, then you may be able to make a pre preemptive strike. And at that point, Alistair Campbell kicks in with his spin doctor sort of stuff. You know, Saddam could attack the UK within 45 minutes and that's this right. gets all around the news. Um, and so that's how they work it. So they, they create their own their own storyline and um, they create their legal excuses so they can do what they want. They have the legal excuse and have the marketing and people. And that's where, that's where maybe, they do have the marketing people, but that's where maybe a Jeffrey Epstein type comes into play because I don't believe that left to their own devices, Tony, Idiot Blair and Campbell, Campbell is so vile, I'd put Campbell, you know, below Blair. When I say below him, I mean closer to the, Closer to the devil. He's Eve again using these, throwing around these terms is maybe not professional, but Campbell is disgusting in every sense of the word. But but you know, left to their own devices, Tony Blair uh, sweeps the power in 1997. Tony Blair is not interested in getting involved in bombing Iraq. I think this is where you've got to look at. We 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 talked about coercion in reference to um, uh, the brilliant Eric Clapton interview. These guys are are picked at some stage. There's all sorts of rumours about players' exploits when he was at uni. Yes. And things he yeah. was into, you know. And a wonderful book by an author whose name escapes me. It was made into a film. I read the book, made into a film by, by Ewan McGregor. It's called The Ghost. If you like a bit of fiction, it's absolutely fantastic. Robert Harris wrote it as The Ghost, where... He he, it's it's kind of about player really. I'm not going to get into it, but it 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 kind of deals with that. You know how these guys come to be, um, the guys who say yeah, press the button and let's kill a million people in Iraq. That's not who Tony ah, Blair was. Ghostwriter is the name. The ghostwriter is the name of the book. Uh, the ghostwriter is the name of the book. A film well done, and the ghost by Robert Harris is the name of the book. It's an excellent read. Yeah, 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 because it's got P.S. Brosnan, hasn't it? Absolutely. And without giving away too many spoilers, well, let's let's just give away spoilers. They've had time to read the book and watch the film. Ultimately, it 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 it's discovered by Ewan McGregor that the former Prime Minister of the UK is being controlled by, by the CIA. By the CIA. Exactly. Two points here. Two points on that. Yeah. Um, first, Alistair Campbell did come to Hong Kong and he gave a talk at the Foreign Correspondents Club, um, probably about four years ago now. I didn't go to the talk. I hate the guy. Um, but the whole media was there. AP, AFP, Reuters, Bloomberg, the local press. Not one question on Iraq. No way. It, it, you can get. You can see it on YouTube. Not one single question on Iraq. It was all puffball questions like. Um, do you think Jeremy Corbyn's a fit leader for the Labour oh, Party? Jesus. Um, how was your coaching in uh, at rugby? Um, what did you enjoy about your work? It was just softball questions. And this is supposed Sickening. to be the cutting edge of the media. And he, he took no questions. They've put him on Good Morning Britain in the place of Piers Morgan. This is the reward for being party to genocide. We'll put you on television and we'll... We'll rebrand you as some Labour Party sage, some guy we should be listening to. I, I tweeted him when I tweet guys like I'm 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 long banned from Twitter, but when I would tweet guys like that, I wouldn't um, swear at them. I wouldn't use language. I would just tell them what they are. 
I would say, I said to him one time on Twitter, and he did respond to me, Campbell. I said, I bet you more than anybody else in the world prays, ironically, every night that there is no God. <laughs> because if there is, um, you know, it's not going to be nice for you. How do you how, how do yeah. you go to bed and, and, and lay your head on the pillow knowing that you lied to, to the extent that millions of people were killed and millions more were displaced from their homes. Real people, not just numbers, on a, on a screen. And uh, I, I, he didn't swear at me. I, he, he, in so many words, told me to get fucked, basically. And, and that was that. I think he blocked me. But um, evil, absolute evil incarnate, these people. But yeah, they're, they're left to their own devices. The Iraq war would have never happened. But they're picked, cherry-picked, these people. This is only my opinion, I might be wrong. They are cherry-picked because of their foibles, because of the things they are into. Uh, yeah. Very dark things, I think. I'm not going to say what. But um, Robert, we, we, I mean, go ahead. It's, go ahead. The same, it's probably the same with with Boris Johnson, um, with um, David Cameron, they, they were both members of the Bullingdon Club at Oxford. Yeah. Um, and to get into the Bullingdon Club, you have to do, um, oh gosh, rather um, awful rather things, dodgy, dodgy things to get in there. And if someone's got a hold on you for that, then they've got a hold on you for life, really. For life, that's right. And you get the impression in Robert Harris's book, The Ghost, that they are identified at uni because Piers Brosnan's character, who goes on to be the English Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister, he's picked out by the CIA at uni. By the way, it's very interesting. In Robert Harris's book, it's Mossad. But in the film, because the film is made in Hollywood, there was no way that in the movie they were going to say that the Prime Minister was being run by the Israelis. God, no, it was never going to happen. Um, and look, I understand why. I'm sure the filmmakers, I'm sure some of them uh, were Jewish men and women. And they said, no, change it to the CIA, change it. It's all, it's all very good. We're going to talk about Jonathan Sumption. Look how fast the time flies. 24 minutes past six. We've got a half an hour and we've got some very interesting audio. Jonathan Sumption, tell us, who is he? Uh, Jonathan Sumption is, um, well, he was a former... Barrister, uh, Queen's Council Barrister at Brick Court Chambers in London. Uh, prior to that, I think it was an Oxford Don specialising in uh, um, civil, the English Civil War history. That's one of his great talents. Um, he's also um, a light aircraft pilot, excellent skier, has, um, uh, goes on holidays in France and Italy, um, currently sits... He was a former Supreme Court judge in the United Kingdom and currently sits as a part-time um, permanent, non-permanent judge in the Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong. So that brings us back to Hong Kong again. So Brings it right back to where you are, Robert. Now, this first, this first clip is two minutes and 50 seconds long, but it's okay. important. It's Lord Sumption talking about the conduct of the police from the outset of the pandemic. Do you want to say something about that or do you want to comment on it when we've heard it? Let's hear it first and um, then discuss the legal position afterwards. A special word needs to be said about the remarkable powers of enforcement conferred upon the police. The police received powers to enforce the lockdown regulations by giving directions to citizens which it was a criminal offence to disobey. Fixed penalty notices are normally authorised by statute in modest amounts for minor regulatory infractions, parking and lesser offences. The government's regulations, however, authorised them for a great variety of newly created offences and sometimes in very large amounts. On the 26th of August, 
the government introduced by decree an offence of being involved in a gathering exceeding 30 people. And it empowered any policeman in the land to issue a fixed penalty notice of £10,000. This sum, enough to ruin most people, was far in excess of any fine that would be imposed by a court for such an offence. The power was originally advertised as being intended to deal with raves, but it has of course been used for much wider purposes. In particular, it has been used to suppress protests against the government's coronavirus policies. On the 30th of August, the police served a £10,000 fixed penalty notice on Mr. Piers Corbyn for addressing a rally against masks in Trafalgar Square. The regulations contain an exception for political protest, provided that the organisers have agreed a risk assessment and taken reasonable steps to ensure safety. On the 26th of September, the police broke up a demonstration against the government's measures whose organisers had agreed a risk assessment with the local authority and had taken reasonable steps to ensure safety. The police claimed to have done this because some of the demonstrators had not acted in accordance with the arrangements made by the organisers. So they cleared the, the square using batons with considerable violence, injuring about 20 people who were guilty of nothing other than attending an apparently lawful protest. There is, of course, a notable piece of selection involved in these actions. No such fines, arrests or assaults have been seen in other demonstrations, such as those organized by Black Lives Matter or Extinction Rebellion, which did not observe social distancing either, but were thought by the police to have greater public support. It's incredibly interesting listening to that so many months after all of this took place and his clinical analysis of it. But he's right, giving policemen and women the power to impose fixed penalty notices on people up to £10,000. It's even crazy now hearing it. And then the, the difference between the police in how they observed the anti-lockdown protests, lawful protests, and how they observe Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion, batoning and beating up anti-lockdown protesters. And in some cases, am I right in saying this, Robert? In some cases, police even took the knee with some of the Extinction Rebellion, sorry, with some of the Black Lives Matters protesters. And in one case, a police officer, white police officer, apologised for his white male privilege. The, 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 the difference in how those two protests were approached. That's, it's sobering stuff, that, listening back to it. It is. I think the police definitely took the knee because I, I, I saw, I remember seeing the photograph in, in one of the papers and I downloaded it. I was like, I'm trying to compile my own sort of um, um, sort of book on, 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 the, on the whole of this event. So I'm, I'm collecting things. And yeah, the police took the knee. There were quite a lot of the police took the knee, even though I think some of the Black Lives Matter protesters were actually throwing bottles at the police, I think plastic bottles at the police, but they still took the knee and, and no arrests were made. Um, but, um, of any of the protesters. Um, whereas, because, you see, the Mayor of London approved of Black Lives Matter, he approves of Extinction Rebellion, 
but he doesn't approve of anti-lockdown. He doesn't approve of, of people criticising the, the vaccination or or those policies. And that actually makes him unfit to be a mayor um, because um, I think afterwards, if you played a little bit more of that clip, the mayor um, congratulated the police on their actions. I, I think that that's what's... Um, no, they did. They absolutely did. There is There is another 90-second... Um, clip that we can play now that follows on from that. But you're right to say that about Khan. I'm not going to defend him. He did, um, he 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 did stand over the conduct of the police. Is there an argument to be made? I love saying that to a to a barrister. Could it be argued that the the police men and women are like most every other man and woman, except for they do a very different job? But they might very well, many of them, have believed in the seriousness of COVID. You know, we well, know COVID isn't serious, but but the uniform wearers, maybe many of them thought it was, and that explains some of the anger in dealing with the COVID protesters, whom they might very well have believed were putting lives at risk because of their failure to socially distance. Well, the police um, are a professional police force, and they have to behave in a in a professional manner at all times and treating people equally. So their own personal belief shouldn't really come into this. Yeah. And and if they, you know, doing what they did, obviously they've injured people they should not have injured, which means the injured people should have a claim against the Metropolitan Police for any injuries they've suffered and for any losses they suffered as a result of that action. And also there should be criminal charges brought against the police for assault, battery and, and abuse of police power. That that should happen. Absolutely. And also, the um, it's not just the the police actually carrying out the beatings, but who gave the command for those beatings? Who, who told the police to move in? Who would have I, done I, that? Would it have been Cressid the Dick, or would it have been as high as Khan? It, we don't know. We um, don't know. Absolutely don't know. But I think again, um, you, you people in that area would be. From a practical point of view, I don't like MPs, but I would ask the MP to find out that the full chain of command and ensure that um, civil damages are received to those people that suffered injury and that criminal charges are brought against um, the police that carried out the beatings. And also there needs to be an investigation into who gave those commands and ideally those people suspended from duty. Well because said, well said, it, because... It, th- Sorry, Robert. Because, sorry, because what they're doing here is they're actually undermining the, the police force as a whole. Yeah. Um, if, if you're selective about this, the trust in the police soon diminishes. That's not a good thing. Um, and that's so that's why it's actually quite serious. It's not. Um, and, and I think that's why Lord Sumption actually drew attention to it, because it is a serious thing when the police show favour over one group yeah. and not another group. And. Th- those are serious offences, and I don't know if there's any been investigation or not, but but there should be. I mean, this is a year ago now, isn't it? Of course. I mean, if you're if you're the MP whose jurisdiction covers Trafalgar Square, I don't know who it is off the top of my head. There was a time when I would have known. I I, I was that invested in politics that I would have known pretty much who the MP is. But th- yes, that MP should of course be very interested in what happened on his or her patch. 
and and should be demanding answers as to why the police did that. Why the police make a moral judgment that one protest is okay and another one isn't, and the one we don't like will will, will billy club people and threaten them and throw them around. You're absolutely right. Robert is our guest. Robert Hansen, PhD, uh, barrister of uh, 20 years plus experience, runs uh, his own firm, Silk Road Chambers Limited in Hong Kong. It's a regarded law firm. It's dealt with some very high profile clients uh, over the years, continues to do so. We've been chatting about Robert's um, take, really, on the last 18 months and from from a legal perspective what's been happening how it's happened and and what maybe people can do about it look I'm going to say straight away at 26 minutes to the top of the air I'll ask Robert back for a follow up obviously and, and, and we won't wait too long to do it because there's much more that we should get into and could but we are going to stop at 7 o'clock um, but we're going to play right now the rest of that assumption clip well no there are more assumption clips but the the next bit about the police. In fact, the police substantially exceeded even the vast powers that they received. In the period immediately after the announcement of the lockdown, a number of chief constables announced that they would stop people acting in a way that they regarded as in, inessential, although there was no warrant for this in the regulations. One of them threatened to go through the shopping baskets of those exercising their right to obtain supplies so as to ensure that they were not buying anything that a constable might regard as inessential. Other forces set up roadblocks to enforce powers that they did not possess. Derbyshire police notoriously sent up surveillance drones and published on the internet a film clip denouncing people taking exercise in the Derbyshire fells, something which people were absolutely entitled to do. When I ventured to criticise them in a BBC interview for acting beyond their powers, I received a letter from the Derbyshire Police Commissioner objecting to my remarks on the ground that in a crisis such things were necessary. The implication was that in a crisis the police were entitled to do whatever they thought fit without being unduly concerned about the limits of their legal powers. That is my definition of a police state. I mean, that's as powerful as it gets. We're living yeah. in a police state. We are. And the it's like, it's like the police are you know, out of control. They think they can do whatever they want. Power's gone to their head um, with, with this coronavirus um, legislation. And I think a lot of it comes from the confusion between... Um, the, the statute, um, which is called primary legisla- legislation, and then there are regulations which are secondary legislation. Now, those are the only two things that count. They're the two things that people should obey, and they're the two things that the police can can legally enforce. But anything to do with suggestions, guidelines, um, instructions, anything else. Yeah, doesn't count. Like going and through somebody's bag to determine what is essential in the bag and what isn't. And just for anybody who's listening to this for the first time, Jonathan Sumption is right. This was widely reported at the time. You had police officers stopping people. I remember there was a two two friends, two two women, went for a walk on the moors, um, not a million miles away from here, and they were accosted and fined by a police officer out in the middle of nowhere. 
going for a walk. I mean, what are statutory instruments? You talked about primary and secondary legislation. We hear about statutory instruments in the context of the Coronavirus Act of 2020. Is it statutory instruments? Is that a broad term that allows the government basically to do whatever it wants during this COVID pretty, thing? Um, pretty much so, which is why he talks about um, oh, law by decree, essentially. So you have what's called the, the primary legislation, which is the statute, for example, the Coronavirus Act, and that inside that will be very specific things, which are laws, and then it, it may have... Um, some general terms which would say these are to be determined by regulations, statutory instruments, and then it will say how those um, are to be put in place. And sometimes it empowers the government to do whatever it wants. The biggest problem act on that, just to deviate just a little bit, is the Civil Contingencies Bill 2004, because that particular piece of legislation, and again, it's another Tony Blair piece of legislation, that allows the government to lock up healthy people in times of emergency or crises. Yeah. That's, that, that, that's very broad. That, that's the first time it's ever happened, because under the Public Health Act, the 1984 Public Health Act, and then amended again in 2008, the, the, the government um, only has the power to, to lock up um, infected people and suspend trading in infected premises. So it only deals with infected people. Indeed, so does the Coronavirus Act. But unfortunately, this 2004 Act allows the government to make any regulations any time it wants if there is um, some kind of public emergency or crises. In other words, it allows the government to do anything. There's only a couple of um, restrictions on that, which is that the government has to, to lay before Parliament within seven days of making that regulation, those regulations, and gain parliamentary approval. Uh, and then they have to be renewed every 30 days. Every 30 that. days? They have to renew after that. That's under these emergency provisions. The, the 2004 Civil Contingencies Act is something I think should be repealed because it's it's a very very dangerous act. Do you, did you do you remember when 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 the act came in when it came into law? Do you remember thinking at the time this is incredibly dystopian? Would you have been aware of it? I was doing a postgraduate course in TV and radio in in Salford, and I don't remember any of that. I I, I have no memory of it. I know of the law now because of what's happened in in recent times, but would you have known about that at the time and would legal eagles, to use a horrible cliche, like yourself and your pals, would you have been saying, this is madness? No, I mean, that, that, that's the worst thing about a lot, a lot of legislation just quietly goes by, doesn't mm. it? You know, the really, the really important stuff just, you know, just, just goes through, people don't notice it and, um, and it lays dormant for many, many years and then suddenly, you know, 20 years later, it's plucked out of the hat and say, aha, Civil Contingency Act 2004, we can do what we want. We can put healthy people in home and tell them to stay there. And you think that that... And they can, they can do it for any form for any of crisis or emergency. So even the global warming scam, they can do it for absolutely anything. Stay at home absolutely this weekend. anything. We, there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere, no barbecues Correct. this weekend, and stay at home. 
Here's another little clip from Sumption. I'll move this on because there's a big clip. There's a three and a half minute clip coming in a minute where he talks about Italy and China. And okay. it's very important that. But let's have a little bit of a listen to uh, Lord Sumption on coercion, I believe. There's another feature of the history, namely the propaganda by which the government has to some extent been able to create its own public opinion. Fear was deliberately stoked up by the government. The language of impending doom, the daily press conferences, the alarmist projections of the mathematical modelers, the manipulative use of selected statistics, the presentation of exceptional tragedies as if they were the normal effects of COVID-19. And above all, the attempt to suggest that COVID-19 was an indiscriminate killer when the truth was that it killed identifiable groups, notably those with serious underlying conditions and the old, who could and arguably should have been sheltered without coercing the entire population. These exaggerations were not accidental. They followed naturally from the logic of the measures themselves. They were necessary in order to justify the extreme steps which the government had taken and to promote compliance. As a strategy, this was entirely successful. So successful was it that when the government eventually woke up to the damage that it was doing, especially to the economy and to the education of children, it found it difficult to reverse course. The public naturally asked themselves, well, what had changed? The honest answer to that question would have been that nothing much had changed. The threat had just not been fairly presented in the first place. Again, it it's so clinical listening to him talk about totalitarianism because that's what it is. Yeah, I, he's um, as I say, absolutely brilliant analysis of um, of what was taking place. Um, it also, to me, highlights or brings into play some of the elements of fraud um, under the 2006 Fraud Act, um, because it, we, that has three ways in which fraud can be committed. Um, there can be a false representation, failure to disclose information, or abuse of vision. So false representation would be an untrue or misleading statement. Failure to disclose information um, is failing to disclose information that you're under a legal duty to disclose. An abusive position is when a person occupies a position where he's expected to, to safeguard the interested and interests of another. But in order to get home and dry on those, you need to show dishonesty or that you intend to make a gain for someone, um, either yourself or another person. Now, I would have thought that MPs with interesting companies such as Owen Patterson and, and Randocks or fund managers or advisors on, on company boards um, may fall foul of the Fraud Act 2006. Um, and also, you, you play some great clips from um, Kay Burley sometimes, um, I think from last year, where they were going through going through the deaths and, and she'd read out a, a 39 year old um, yeah. caretaker yeah. that fell down, then he was diagnosed and later he was um, diagnosed with COVID and this 29 year old nurse um, was um, died on the 27th of September and um, she was diagnosed with COVID and this and so what Sky did and what Kay Burley did was 
as Lord Sumption correctly states there, they were making out that COVID-19 was an indiscriminate um, disease that could actually strike anybody at any time strike anybody at any time and that was what Kay Burley was doing every day day in day out week after week after week that is fraud it's absolute fraud because she knows full well that is not a true statement yeah she would have known the whole of the Sky team know that is not true Sumption knows it's not true the whole medical profession knows it's not true Chris Whitty knows it's not true and yet Sky were getting away with this day in day out and the reason why they may be liable for fraud, possibly, I mean, this is pure academic discussion. We're not accusing them or anything. We're just analyzing possibilities here. And the reason is because for fraud to occur, there has to be a gain um, for, for somebody. Someone has to gain from this. And in the case of Sky, I would have thought, if they receive in advertising yeah. um, budgets from the, the vaccination companies and also the testing companies... And, and the government. Spon- and, and also the government sponsorship money here um, because the government wants policy, then by actually committing this fraud, they are enabling these other groups to make gains. So I think Sky may well, you know, if I was writing an academic essay now or or just a pure academic advice, I would say Sky could be in the firing line for fraud under the 2006 Fraud Act, as would any MP that um, took a similar line to what Sky was doing and exaggerating the claim and at the same time had some form of interest, like Owen Patterson, for example, and Randox or any of these fund managers, any people that have shares in these companies that are stoking up Like the Matt fear, Hancock's is... sister. Like Matt Hancock's sister. You know, we, we, I'd love to get into this with you again, this whole area of, of liability. Like, you're making a compelling argument as to how Sky might have a case to answer. At the same time, as somebody who's worked in lots of different positions in the mainstream media, I think... I'm not saying I could beat your argument, I'm not saying I could at all, but I think I could make a robust enough defence of Sky, much as I despise them. This takes me back to my old debating lessons years ago, my old debating classes. You take a position that you don't agree with. But I could make an argument that, that yes, OK, they got the government books, yes, they got the advertising books, but ultimately they're, they're, they're presenters and producers and writers. They, it could be argued that they believed what they were being told that they believed that we were in a national emergency, despite all evidence to the contrary. It might be very difficult to prove that they didn't know, is what I'm saying, but we could get into that. What I want to do is play a 30-second Sumption clip, Lord Sumption clip, Jonathan Sumption clip, and then this three-minute one, which is really, it's, it's, it, it's outstanding, the one where he talks about how what was over there, to, to, to paraphrase George Michael, what was over there is suddenly over here, the totalitarianism that, that yeah. we, we see in China. But this, this little clip first, I think. I don't know why it's not playing. It should be playing right now. Sometimes the most public-spirited thing that you can do with despotic laws like these is to ignore them. I think that if the government persists long enough with locking people down, depending on the severity of the lockdown, uh, civil disobedience is likely to be the result. Lovely. So he's advocating. He is. There's no two ways about it. He's advocating disobey 
laws that you do not believe to be lawful, effectively? Yes, yeah, he's saying um, um, just, ign just ignore them, just, just ignore the laws and, and that's the best way you can deal with totalitarianism. However, the problem occurs when, for example, if you want to go to a supermarket and you've got a bouncer on the door, yeah. um, you, it's a bit difficult to ignore that. Or, or if you want to, to fly from Hong Kong to England and they say, well, you've got to have a COVID test. I say, no, 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 no. I, I want to civil, be civil disobedient. I'm not going to make you it can't. through the airport door. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So um, where you have these private companies, the private companies, where you have all these private companies that have their own rules and their own methods of enforcement, civil disobedience gets increasingly Complicated. difficult. But mm. yeah, but but for I agree. I think civil disobedience, if everybody did it, it's the most peaceful way to bring down totalitarianism and, and, and I totally agree with that. It just occurs where, as I say, you've got the bounce from the supermarket door. It makes life a little bit if difficult. In, if entire communities got together, like I'm in the middle of Salford, right in the middle of it, um, near Salford Royal Hospital, and if, if an entire community got together and said to Salford local authority, listen, you can go and sing for your council tax, um, it's bent, we know it, you're bent, we get nothing for it, it's taxation without representation. Uh, no, we're not going to do it. If you get thousands of households, not five or six or seven, and they stick together through thick and thin and they hide their automobiles in other streets and in other boroughs so they can't be um, taken by a bailiff, eventually that local authority has to buckle. I, I'm convinced of it. I've been thinking of these things for years. We've got nine minutes to go. Listen to this three-minute cut from Jonathan Sumption speaking to the Unheard podcast, which is on YouTube. Go and look at Unheard. And after this three minutes, which is really profound now, uh, Robert will have three minutes to sum up and then we'll call it a day. But it's been brilliant, brilliant having Robert on. Listen to uh, Jonathan Sumption here. What uh, changed the position was the fact that Italy had followed the Chinese example in ordering a national lockdown at the end of February of last year. Now, ultimately, this all stems from China. And Professor Ferguson has accepted in a very candid uh, interview in The Times a couple of weeks ago uh, that they never realized, as he put it, that they could get away with it until China, followed by Italy, showed them the way. Now, I think that's a serious problem about that. China was able to do that because it doesn't have a culture of liberty. Uh, it is a totalitarian state. It is a state which is founded upon the principle that human beings are simply tools of collective national policy. That's completely different from our tradition. And I think most objective people would recognize that. What they tend to say is, well, this is a very serious pandemic. I've given my own views about how serious it really is. We have to temporarily depart from our normal principles. Uh, and that's fine because we can go back to being less like China and more like the United Kingdom when it's all over. Now, I think that this is an illusion because our status as a free society doesn't actually depend upon our laws or our constitution. It depends on convention. It depend, depends on a collective instinct as to the right way to behave. 
There are many things that governments can do, uh, which it is generally accepted they should not do. And one of them, until last March, uh, was uh, to lock up healthy people in their homes. So do you think we have taken an irreversible step towards being more Chinese, more dirigiste in our... I very much fear that we have, because the problem is when you depend for your basic freedoms on convention rather than law, once the convention is broken, the spell is broken. Once you get to a position where it is unthinkable to lock people up nationally, uh, except uh, when somebody thinks it's a good idea, then frankly, there is no longer a barrier at all. We have crossed that threshold and governments do not forget these things. So you, you would worry that, for example, if there's another pandemic or if there's another new variant or there's some other pathogen identified somewhere, now the precedent is set, what we do is we shut down society. Yes. What I'm concerned about is not simply the danger of another new pathogen causing additional deaths. Uh, I think that this is a model uh, which will come to be accepted, if we're not very careful, uh, as a way of dealing with all manner of collective problems. As you said yourself earlier, Robert, not just perceived threats from airborne pathogens, but from anything, from terrorism, from climate, from anything they want. Yes, and I think the climate one is, is going to be one that's going to be used because that's the one that they've really, really, really been pushing just about more than more than anything else. And I think COVID is a way to take people to the climate one. And, and, and the reason is because, it, it just really back to first principles, everything is made of carbon. I mean, you're, you are made of carbon, I'm made of carbon, the computer, the, our microphones, um, the desk, the chair, everything is made of carbon. And fully combusted carbon turns into CO2, which means one part carbon, two parts oxygen. It's transparent, you can't see it, it's odourless, you can't smell it. Um, it's what it, it's, it's known as the gas of life because it carbon dioxide combines with sunlight and through a process of photosynthesis makes trees, plants, food grow. And we depend upon it for food. Every living creature breathes carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is life. Now, I don't like the idea of people like, unfortunately, Gates and, and, and all, all his mob being in control of, of, of carbon because you can control absolutely anything because everything is made of carbon and all life depends upon carbon dioxide. Control that, you control life. That's what they really want. That's their big game. Would you come back next month? I know it's a bit awkward with, with the time difference. I, I would absolutely be delighted to pre-record it. But live is great because I've not read out any of the comments, but if you do get a chance tomorrow, there's been hundreds of comments on richieallen.co.uk. I'd like to pick it up again next month before Christmas, or even probably better, maybe just after, maybe in January, when things are a bit uh, quieter, when they've settled down to do another programme. I'd appreciate it if we could do that because there's so much to follow up on. But um, before you have the last 30 seconds, you've been listening, uh, my friend, you have been listening to Robert Hansen, PhD, barrister, 
London qualified and uh, 20 years in Hong Kong with his own firm Silk Road Chambers Limited it's been a pleasure to listen to you uh, Robert it really has and I am genuinely grateful for your time thanks for doing it I hope we'll pick it up again very quick final 20 seconds to you mate and uh, all the best for now Okay, 20 seconds. Okay, I would ask people to write to their MPs, to ask the MP to send to all constituents and display in all public areas um, the full problems associated with with this so-called COVID vaccination, from the test being unreliable to to long-term, no long-term safety data, no um, insurance, um, the fact it received emergency approval, the fact that the booster shots, there is no known data about this and I think if we can get people to write to their MPs to to say MP write to all your constituents because you owe them a duty of care and display this notice in public places that might help slow down the take up of the vaccine if the MPs did that and I think actually they have a duty of care to do that um, because they do owe a duty of care a legal duty of care to their constituents and right now they're breaching that duty of care so it's in their best interest actually to do it Robert thanks and uh, that's it okay thank you very much Richie no it's been an absolute pleasure thank you Uh, I'll be in touch by the way I'm going to get off air and get this online instantly I'll be in touch thanks for coming on thanks to our mutual friend Jean Ann Crowley for introducing us by the way um, great value Robert I mean it and uh, I look forward to doing it again very soon you've been listening to Dr Robert Hansen PhD PhD barrister in Hong Kong and uh, you've heard him on two Mondays Jesus Richie I'm looking at the time here now and I'm losing the run of myself on Monday's Richie Allen show the 15th of November 2021 do share the podcast far and wide when it is published online which it will be in a few moments thanks for listening see you tomorrow at five usual time usual place look after yourselves and one another bye now